Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and joined again at the table by Tim Cockrell. Tim wrapped up our study of Exodus this past Sunday. He focused on Exodus chapter 40. And Tim, so we've spent right at five full months. Uh, We started back at the first part of May Mm -hmm. in our study in Exodus, the second book of the Pentateuch. And before we get into the particulars of this particular study of chapter 40, can you tell us what impact this study has had on you as you've studied and prayed and presented the results of that work to the congregation? Absolutely. I think there's probably two things that come to mind. You know, the first one being so many of the stories in the book of Exodus are familiar to us. We, we, if you grew up in church, you you heard the stories of the plagues or Moses in the, the basket or the Israelites in the wilderness. The flannel graphs are reflecting in my mind. Exactly. Right? You, you've got it. So I think one thing for me was it was really helpful to just study through the entire book and see how all those pieces fit together. You know, the the big picture, if you will, of God's salvation and just how regularly and repeatedly it depended on his initiative and his grace. That even him saving the Israelites from Egypt was not because they finally got it together and cried out to God, but that God in his grace intervened and rescued them. And so just seeing all of those things and God's grace lavished on his people over and over again, whether it was in the things he provided in the wilderness or the law or the renewal of the covenant, even after they had just broken it only weeks after. But I think I think the the second one is I think even in spite of all my theological education and and times that I've spent studying these things I think there was still a, a misunderstanding of the Mosaic covenant that that the Mosaic covenant was somehow if you just work hard enough and obey these laws then you're accepted before God and that you're accepted by before God on that basis here but then in the New Testament it's by grace and even if I would say I knew you're always and only saved by grace, I, I still am not sure I could have articulated how the Mosaic law fit into that. And so understanding that God had already rescued and redeemed his people and that the Mosaic law was then the way they were to live out that salvation as a kingdom of priests was really helpful for me as I thought about it and certainly the parallels then that we have in our salvation as well. You talk about the idea of you know separating the idea of grace from the idea of works, um, and you you mentioned this here a number of weeks back, and that was the fact that all religions outside of Christianity they, they seem to be more works based, man reaching out to God mm-hmm. and trying to make himself good enough. And you can name you know ten different religions outside of Christianity, and that really is the focus. So that's that's a natural. Uh, human condition that we're trying to make ourselves good enough, just not possible. Right. And that's why I think it's important to clarify that's not what God was doing in the Mosaic Covenant. He wasn't saying, okay, if you meet me halfway or if you can just keep these laws well enough, but rather it was a recognition you're not going to be able to. And by the way, that's why there's these sacrifices. These are the expressions of faith that are going to show you're dependent only on my grace. Great. Well, moving into this past week then, we spent a healthy amount of time on Sunday understanding some of the intricacies, I'll call them, the features of the tabernacle. And you pointed out uh, during your presentation that everything about that design of the tabernacle that that God describes there in chapters about, what, 35 through Mm -hmm. 39— 
it points to Jesus. And you also said that God's call to build the tabernacle as a, as a portable structure was in effect his statement that he was going to be traveling with them throughout their, you know, whatever would come. You know, mm-hmm. We know now that's 40 years. They didn't know that. It's probably just as well they didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But, Tim, I, I've got to think that this was especially significant in light of our study last week and what God was telling the Israelites there in chapter 34. He said that he was going to send the people into the promised land without his presence. And, of course, his will was that he would go with them. And we've talked about God's will and God's uh, does God change his mind. If you're thinking about that, folks who are listening, go back two weeks and listen to our discussion there. But it had to be very poignant to them that God was saying, okay, here I am and I'm sticking around. Right. Absolutely. And I think we see it especially at the end of chapter 40, where it says, all right, when the the cloud or the, the pillar of fire rises up and moves forward, that's when you're going to go. And when it stays put, you stay put. But that at any point, the Israelites could look and have that visual confirmation. God is still with us. He, he hasn't abandoned us. He's our source of sufficiency. But even as we think about that, the, the structure of the tabernacle reminded them that he was not immediately accessible to them. Mm. He was still present with them. And even the way the tent, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the camp would have been set up, the tabernacle would have been right in the center of it. But the, the perimeter fence would have been a reminder. You can't just approach uninvited or, or, um, you know, insufficient on your, on your own. You have to come to that, that altar where the sacrifices are offered. And so, you know, that's why we kind of walk through all of that imagery that points us to Christ, that Christ is the sufficient sacrifice that brings those of us who are far away near. He is the the cleansing water, if you will, that washes away our uncleanness so that we can be pure. He is the the light of the world and the source of eternal life. He is the the bread of life, the means by which we have fellowship. And he is the the one who invites us into intercession and prayer boldly coming into his presence because we have a great high priest who's already gone beyond the veil. And I think there's just such richness there as we study the tabernacle. In like manner, we have a lot of that, those, those senses right now. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, a number of passages in Ephesians and Hebrews in particular, talking about the, the confidence that we have, but we also, and to enter into God's presence. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking too, Tim, about the, uh, the warnings, uh, our God is a consuming fire is Mm -hmm. one that comes to mind. Uh, consuming fire means uh, danger, uh, Mm -hmm. careful. So there is that tension even today. There absolutely is. And, you know, I was just having this discussion with some students not long ago of God's transcendence, that he is separate from his creation and, and distinct. He is not like us, but also his imminence. And so there's some aspects of his character that he is is holy, he is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, that, that represent his sovereign authority, if you will. But there are other aspects that emphasize his imminence, that he is near to us. Those are his relational qualities, his grace and mercy, his patience and love. And I think we just have to make sure we're holding those two simultaneously. And let's be honest, we, we like the, the loving, merciful, gracious God more than we like maybe the the wrathful, just, um, reverent God that we tremble before. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Hebrews 12 that you just referenced, that we are to worship him with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. 
I think that's something we need to remember as we study the book of Exodus. The same God that they trembled before at Mount Sinai is the God whom we serve. And therefore, we we live with a sense of humility before him, but also confidence in the work that Christ has done for us. I just started a book the other day, Jonathan Lehman, uh, dealing with the issue or the you know the juxtaposition of God's authority or the authority in general and mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. and he's talking there uh, he mentions that uh, in our world today it's often bantied about God is love so whatever I do in the name of love is okay mm-hmm. and he points out that yes God is love but be careful that you don't switch that around and make the conclusion then that love as I define it, mm-hmm. is God. Right. And that's often what we do, is it not? It is. Yep. So, Tim, I appreciated your, your connection of the orientation of the tabernacle as it was to face eastward. You talked about that, and you compared that, or you, you joined that up with the idea in Genesis that when Adam and Eve were cast from the Garden of Eden, they were they went out to the east. In fact, the, the flaming swords, the angels with the flaming swords were set there at the entrance to the garden, as we read there in chapter 3 of, of Genesis. Are there other similar references uh, in the scripture to the east? And might I also comment, this really highlights the presence of the common themes throughout the Bible, and it reminds us the Bible is one book as we see these themes running throughout scripture. Absolutely, and that was one of the things we really wanted to emphasize in this final um, sermon in the book of Exodus is that this is still, even as we wrap up this book, it's a part of a much bigger book. Continuing saga. Exactly. And so I'm I'm really glad you actually asked this question because this was something, in any given sermon, there's certain things that you study in your study that you can't bring to the pulpit. Oh, I want to get it out. <laughs> so, so this gives me this opportunity because I think this is just incredible if we study it. When the temple was built, it was also oriented to the east. So if you're familiar with Jerusalem, it was oriented to the Mount of Olives. So as the sun rose, it shone down into the courtyard onto the holy place, and and behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies. And it was there that God's presence dwelled. But in Ezekiel chapter 10, because Israel had abandoned God and were no longer living for him, we read about how the glory rose up from above the Ark of the Covenant and proceeded out of the temple to the east. Hmm. It goes out to the Mount of Olives and then and we would assume ascends up into heaven. And so from that point on, it was a gloryless temple. What I then find really interesting is in Matthew 21, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, he comes in that eastern gate and up into the temple. And there were gates on all four sides, north, south, east, and west, three on each side. Exactly. So the glory of God and the person of Christ has come back into the temple, but the religious leaders still showed the same hardness of heart that the people had back in Ezekiel chapter 10. And so Christ is crucified and, of course, rose again. And so then he goes to the Mount of Olives where he ascends into heaven. But where this becomes even more incredible is if you look in Zechariah 14.4, when Jesus comes again, he's going to descend onto the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two, and he is going to come into the eastern gate, into the temple, and the glory of God will once again be there, but, but ultimately in this new creation. And ironically, if you go to Israel today, 
the eastern gate has been blocked off by the Muslims because they know this prophecy that, that the Messiah is going to come in the eastern gate. And so I, I think, do think it's a little ironic that they think that a few cinder blocks are going <laughs> to keep the, the prophecies from being fulfilled. But I think it just reminds us that there is this movement of God is going to restore what was lost at Eden. And ultimately, it's going to happen through the judgment that Zechariah 14 tells us about. Okay, you referenced the temple. Let's uh, no doubt there's somebody thinking, okay, we've got the tabernacle during their wanderings. We've got the temple. We know the temple was <clears throat> David desired to build it, mm-hmm. but God said, no, you're a man of war. And he allowed Solomon, his uh, son and his successor on the throne, to build the, the temple. What's the? Can you just briefly describe the transition from the, the tabernacle to the temple? What did the temple represent? Right. So the tabernacle recognized that they were going to be wandering in the wilderness. So that's why everything was portable. Everything had rings for transportation through poles or uh, were able to be taken down and transported through the wilderness. But once God established them in the promised land and once David had established his capital there in Jerusalem and uh, Solomon then built the temple, there was the sense in which this is the heart of the promised land. This is where God has promised that he will be with his people and therefore we're going to build a permanent structure that is more of a glorious structure we talked a little bit about compared to the egyptian temples this little tent tabernacle wouldn't have been anything terribly impressive while the the temple of solomon would have been it it would have been uh, beautiful it would have been permanent it represented the fact that this was to be a perpetual place of worship However, we know that even as Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD, it was never God's plan for that to be the ultimate temple. That as we talked about on Sunday, we, we would eventually become the temple and then ultimately we would be in heaven where there would be no need for a temple because God himself would be there. And you say we collectively would be the temple and individually as well. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as well as that the church is the bride of Christ, the people of God, who are called to be that set-apart people just as Israel were. Okay, well, let's take it one step further. As we said, this is a continuing saga. So we see in Revelation, there's a temple. What's the role of that temple? Well, so there is no temple in Revelation. I'm there, sorry. I'm sorry. In right. Ezekiel, you're is, right. is Ezekiel, what you're referencing, and that's apocalyptic people, literature, right? So people will discuss and debate as to what exactly the nature of it is. I think whether there is a structure there or not, we could have a, a longer discussion. But what Hebrews eight makes clear is that the temple was a picture of heaven. You know that that it is a copy, if you will, a, a map. To, to how we find our way back home. And so from my perspective, that suggests that the temple anticipates what heaven fulfills. And that is, it is the reality that we can approach God's throne room. We can, can see the cherubim live and in person there. And that therefore, heaven itself is a temple, if you will, because God is at the center of it. Okay, great, great. Well, that, that whole study of apocalyptic literature is uh, a lot of symbolism there, too. And, mm-hmm. of course, we're going to talk just briefly about just a little taste of Revelation that we're going to get here in, yes. in a couple of weeks. So uh, keeping on this, just for one more comment, I had to chuckle uh, to myself. You, you referenced that the tabernacle was full of promise, but it was also full of danger and the concept of God being with them. And I couldn't help thinking of God as the ultimate chaperone. You know, mm-hmm. We've all had 
chaperones. We've all adults probably had to be chaperones, but yeah, it kind of seems to me this is really a foreshadowing in a way of Jesus's promise to the disciples that He would be with them even to the end of the age there in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And so that saga does go on. Jesus, or God, the Son, sent the Spirit to indwell us, and that's never going to leave. Right. Well, and that's where when we see the progressive revelation that the the promise and the danger of the tabernacle was that they could, even the priests, only the priests, could come into the holy place and they could have bread in the presence of God. They could enjoy the light that was there from this lamp that looked like the tree of life. They could offer prayers even by putting incense on the altar of incense and that their intercession and the incense would ascend before the throne. But there was always that curtain. There was that always that reminder that the way into intimacy with God is blocked. And that is why when Christ then dies... And, and makes a way for us to enter, and the curtain is torn, that for him to say, I will be with you always, mm. is now full of promise because the danger has been eliminated, that the penalty that we deserved has been fully and finally dealt with. And that is the wonder of the new covenant, that the law is now written on our hearts, that now we have the anticipation that Christ dwells in us and we will be with him someday face to face, that's good news. And we, we focused on this a lot in our Adult Bible Fellowship, uh, talking about God's presence. And, and that presence, we've already indicated, is, pre- is uh, evident from Genesis all the way through Revelation. i got to tell you, when I'm leading my Adult Bible Fellowship or preparing to lead in a discussion of the sermon topic, I reference uh, the study that Daniel Ackerman and others are so faithful mm-hmm. to put out. Uh, so appreciate the work they do, and I use between twenty-five and one hundred percent of that material when I'm when I'm preparing. And this week, just I couldn't have done any better, so I just told the class, "Hey, this is Daniel's stuff. Let's <laughs> talk about it." But uh, the point out, uh, it was focused on the idea of God with us. Mm-hmm. Really, we talked through that. Emmanuel is a word that portrays that, and. You know, we start with the creation account, we end with the revelation of John, and specifically in chapters 21 and 22, it just it ends with the, uh, the fullness of Christ. Uh, let's talk for a few minutes about how God has faithfully and differently through the, we've got to be careful here, can we say dispensations, or through the different, through the, the uh, whole arc of history, how he has dwelt among his people throughout the ages can we just quickly run through that whole story absolutely well i mean we begin in eden where adam and eve knew god face to face they walked with him and talked with him in the garden they enjoyed an intimacy of relationship a depth of communication with god and obviously that was then forfeited when they sinned that fractured that relationship and created separation which is what sin does and because of that the consequence was that they would be expelled from the garden to the east of eden and that the entrance was then guarded by these cherubim with a a flaming sword that said if you try to engage with the holy god because you are unholy people the sword of god's judgment must fall on you and yet god in his grace made ways for people to still relate to him and so i mean i think of of Abraham and the the covenant that was initiated with him, um, even the the ram in the thicket uh, that that God allowed to be sacrificed so that Isaac could be saved. So then, when we come to Mount Sinai, if we fast forward, 
suddenly we have God present among his people, but in a terrifying way that it just brings into sharp relief that he is consumingly holy and they are utterly unworthy to come into his presence. But that God allows a mediator of, in Moses to come before him, not because Moses was perfect, but because God in his grace knew there had to be someone to go between. And so even we saw in, in Exodus 34 and 33, this tent of meeting that Moses could commune with God. But there was a, a, another plan that God would create this tabernacle that we've read about, that then there would be a, a series of priests, including a high priest, who would be the mediators for the people that could offer these prayers and minister sacrifices. So that's good news and that there's more people involved who can be ministering, but it's still hard news because most of the people are on the outside looking in. Most of the people have to trust someone else is going to offer these prayers for me. Someone else has to be the one to to give the sacrifice. And so then through the tabernacle and the temple, that was the repeated pattern. And, and every time they would sin, they had to offer a sacrifice. And I have to imagine if I were an Israelite, I'd be saying, if only there was some way for one sacrifice to finally and fully deal with our sin so that we didn't have to perpetually go through this process, which then of course anticipated what Jesus himself would do. And so John 1.14 tells us that, you know, Christ dwelt among us. He literally, literally tabernacled among us so that the glory of God could be accessible to his people, that he would reveal God and redeem his people. And that when Christ died then on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. Access had been opened and a way had been made so that once we trust in Christ, now his Holy Spirit indwells us. And that's astonishing when we think about that all of the power of God dwells in us so that we have wisdom and light and life. But even still, we are not home yet. And so as we rejoice in the fact that the Spirit indwells us, we still long for the day where we will dwell with him in heaven, where we'll have that perfect peace and unbroken joy in his presence. So that's kind of where we see that, that we were home, we, we were expelled from home, and God made a way for us to come home through his son who redeems and restores. Hmm. Well, we're, <clears throat> we've wrapped up a study in Exodus. Uh, we've got three other books in the uh, in the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible. That people, if you want to see the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, go ahead and read those <laughs> uh, other three. Perhaps we'll get to those at another time. But Tim, you've you've led in the preaching of this uh, series. Uh, you've spent a lot of time here as you are as you've been preparing over the past five months. Uh, there's no doubt been some desires that you've had to mm -hmm. uh, as far as what our congregation might see or anybody else mm -hmm. listening to this series. Can you share? Uh, okay, we're there at the end. What would you hope that the church? here at Grace Baptist Church would take from this series and carry on into the future? Hmm. Probably some of the same things that I've already shared that, that God has convicted me of and, and reminded me of. I, I would mention just a few. You know, One would be the reverence for God. I, I feel like in, in modern American churches, relevance is more important than reverence in many cases. Mm, right. And so just that sense that when we come to worship, whether individually or corporately, we are entering the throne room of the king of the universe. And that ought to put things in perspective for us. Um, I think another one that comes to mind is that the events of the Exodus, the God redeeming his people from Egypt and making a covenant with them at Sinai, 
were repeated over and over and over throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms and the prophets and in a variety of different literature. And in many ways, what they're doing there is rehearsing the message of the gospel, that we were saved because God took the initiative, that his loving kindness never fails, that God has always been faithful to the covenant, even when we have not been. And so I think we just need to be reminded we need to rehearse the gospel in our own lives over and over again, because that's where our identity rests as well. Certainly, we can't talk about the book of Exodus without also thinking of the danger of sin. You know, whether it's the idolatry of the golden calf or the, the grumbling and dissatisfaction that takes place in the Israelites. And it's easy to kind of look down on them to say, oh my goodness, they're wanting to go back to Egypt already just because they don't have the food that they want or they're, they're longing for these things. The, the roots of all of those things are in our hearts as well. So just acknowledging that and seeking to uproot that idolatry through genuine worship of the Lord. And then finally, I think just celebrating the grace of God, the unconditional love that in spite of our faults and failures and, and unfaithfulness to him, that God always is faithful to us. And that's good news. You know, that Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He did it for the Israelites with the Exodus, and he does it in our lives, and that's that's worth celebrating. Amen. And uh, you know, might our church remember? You know, even as we're doing the rote actions of Christians, the, uh, the ceremonial type things. You know, with uh, we talk about our the ordinances, baptism, mm-hmm. and uh, and communion. Uh, we celebrate those fairly regularly here, and uh, even as we do that, remembering what God has done for us. Just God has built that into us. We the need for those types of things just to remember and remind ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for your good work, Tim. I, we really appreciate it. And uh, this is a good time to pivot a little bit. Sure. As you end one series, we're going into another, uh, no doubt, shorter series. I'm guessing that we won't spend five months on the seven churches of Revelation. But uh, as we understand, you're going to be starting a series beginning in chapter two of Revelation and uh, talking about the seven churches of, uh, of Revelation. Can you talk a little bit about what we're going to do? Also, perhaps some tips on people who want to get a little ahead mm-hmm. and prepare for this study, what are some things you might encourage them to do? Absolutely. So this next series is going to be Revelation 1 through 3. So we're going to cover chapter 1 because it's so introductory to the the letters or even I would call them the sermons to right. these seven churches. And it's really a cool thing because we're celebrating the presence of God in the tabernacle. And then Revelation 1 begins with John glimpsing the glory of God in heaven and and celebrating the wonder that's there. And so there, there's a neat connection, but it also helps us to really understand the entire book of Revelation. So I've had a few people ask, why don't we just keep going? There's so much good stuff in Revelation. There is. But what I really want us to focus on is that Revelation was a book that was written to churches that were struggling that we're suffering, and that these truths were not meant to just give us a timeline of here's how everything's going to happen, but a reminder that God is with his church. God is sufficient for his church, and God will redeem his church and judge his enemies in his time and according to his perfect plan. And so as we go through this series, we're going to look at these seven sermons where Christ is directly addressing these seven churches in Asian Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. And it's really fascinating to see what Christ commends, what he condemns, how he encourages them, and what rewards are waiting for those churches that respond to these warnings. And I think we'll see a little bit of Grace Baptist Church 
in each of these churches, both positively and negatively. And so my hope is as we go through there, we'll we'll really be amazed at who Christ is, but also reminded of what an immense responsibility is to be his church. And so if you're wanting to kind of work ahead, we've actually made the schedule for this sermon available. It's available in hard copy. We can also email it to you. We're going to be going in this series right up to December 4th, and then we'll go into some Christmas messages, but the the Advent season will overlap a little bit. But I'm really looking forward to the series. I think it's going to be a rich study. Well, certainly at the very least, encouraging people to <clears throat> excuse me, get in and uh, just start reading through chapters 1 through 3. And if you want to go through and do more studying later on in uh, Revelation, feel free to do so that as well. Well, Tim, great to have you. Thanks again for your great work. Tim Cockrell has been our guest for this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace, and we've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapter 40. You can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll continue our discussion of God's Word. At that time, we'll be looking forward to having you join us. And until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.